Hey, welcome to After Church Apologetics. I'm Courtney Seacrest here with Dr. Chris Jakeway and Pastor Leo Wilson, and we're inviting you to join us today in uncovering the truths that will challenge, inspire, and expand your perspective on Christianity. So let's get started. Welcome back to After Church Apologetics. Today, we're going to be addressing some of the common claims that the Bible is sexist or maybe misogynistic or anti-woman. Um, so we're going to be jumping around a little bit based on um, the questions that you guys have submitted. The first one is, uh, why don't women wear head coverings anymore? Um, and why were they told that they had to cover their heads in the first place? Yeah, this is an interesting one. And Oftentimes, people mistakenly think the covering is something other than the hair, like a, a, a scarf or that women should wear a hat in church or something like that. But here's the way Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 14 to 15. He says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. So actually in the context, the head covering is the hair for a woman. And culturally, despite the fact that we see a lot of pictures of Jesus having really long hair, it actually wasn't like that in the first century that women had long hair and men had short hair. So the cultural context here means Paul is saying men should look like men and women should look like women. Now, that's not politically correct in our time, but that's, that's the message. Also, if we ignore that cultural context, that would mean it would be a sin if women have short hair. That would mean that, say, a woman loses her hair from chemotherapy, uh, then she would be a disgrace because her head's not covered. She can't pray. Well, clearly it's not what that means. In our culture today, hair and head coverings are interpreted uh, the same way, certainly not in a religious way today. So the principle that would still apply for us today is that there should be no confusion regarding sexuality. That's what it's about. That a Christian's appearance should never suggest that he or she is opposing God's word. So the next question that I have here says, does the Bible say that women have to marry their rapists? This is a very emotionally charged one that comes from uh, Deuteronomy 22, uh, verses 28 and 29. And the intent of this passage Far from being anti-woman or sexist, has the purpose of advantaging the woman, unlike any group that would accord these kinds of uh, uh, rights to a woman in that day. Here's what Deuteronomy 22 says. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl, it says, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So that means the man must marry her if she's willing and he loses his right to divorce. He must provide for her for the rest of her life if that's her choice. 
Now, Exodus 22, verse 17, sheds some light on this. It tells us that the woman's family must agree to the marriage because since it has been discovered, which is one of the key words there, discovered that she's no longer a virgin, she's not likely to have another chance to get married in that culture. Again, very different from the way it is in our day and time. So the purpose of this Israelite civil law, uh, and that's exactly what this is, was to give here the woman the option of future economic security. It was to advantage her uh, after this uh, horrible thing had happened. Otherwise, she would become a social outcast. She has no possible husband to provide for her, and her family would never receive the bride price which means her whole family's negative imp- uh, impacted here. So according to scripture, sex is intended only for marriage. So if a man has sex with a woman, he must assume the responsibility of caring for that woman for the rest of his life if she agrees to it. Yeah, I think listening to the wording too, it's funny how some people bring up stuff that they've heard and they've heard somebody else say that they heard it mm-hmm. instead of actually like looking to what the Bible actually says. So listen to the wording difference of Exodus 22 verses 16 and 17 versus Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-five. I'll read 22, 16 and 17 out of Exodus first. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. So here it's not about rape. It's about seduction, right? Like he's wrong. And as Chris laid out really well there, it's about protecting the girl, right? So the, the wording there is the idea of, yep, you, you wronged somebody that wasn't all right, but we're going to find a way to make sure everybody's taken care of. Contrast that to Deuteronomy twenty two twenty five here. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. That's quite a difference than having to marry your rapist, right? But you can see how somebody maybe put all these things together and and just didn't properly understand scripture. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. So just this concept of the idea, there are just two very different stories here, right? The idea of you seduced a person rather than raping them, and you're not marrying your rapist in this case. In this case, the rapist pays a penalty, a significant one is life. So the next question says, why does it say that women are unclean after giving birth or having a period? This is part of Israelite ceremonial law, and it's an object lesson. It comes from Leviticus 15, verses 31 to 33. And these are ceremonial laws about bodily discharges. They weren't a moral issue because these are things that couldn't be avoided. And, and this is, I think, what is always missed, this applies equally to men that also have bodily discharges. It's semen rather than blood, but it's the exact same issue. So when people say that this is a an anti-woman uh, kind of thing, it applied equally uh, uh, to men and women. It says in verse 31, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. That, by the way, is the whole 
point of ceremonial law. So they will not die in their uncleanness, which means will not fall into sin, for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. That refers to the tabernacle. Since uh, these are the regulations for a man with a discharge, for anyone made unclean by an emission of semen, for a woman in her monthly period, that's what the questioner asked about specifically, but it's right next to the male discharge, or for a man or woman with a discharge, and for a man who lies with a woman who is ceremonially unclean. The other thing that's important to keep in mind, none of these things were considered sin. That's what people often miss when they ask about this. In each case here, cleansing the person just required bathing. These are normally uh, uh, things that happen, right? They can't be avoided. So there were no offerings or sacrifices necessary because it wasn't sin. Now, some of these rules, of course, help promote personal hygiene and prevent the spread of disease. But primarily, the rules in Leviticus 15 here were there to remind the Israelites that they are flesh and God is spirit. That means people are spiritually unclean. That's what the sinful nature is, even when they don't purposely sin. Because again, they're not doing anything wrong in this case. So the goal here was to maintain a continual awareness that people need God. You know, people always wonder about these clean, unclean distinctions in the Old Testament, and, and some of them seem very arbitrary. In college Bible classes, when we start the Old Testament, uh, I know someone's always going to ask, and it's a good question about things like, why can't they mix wool and cotton fabric? Like, what, what is the big deal with that? Or not trimming the corner of the beard or the, you know, the uh, hair on the temples or so on. Some of these things seem very random. Well, the purpose of those is to create an antithetical mindset that's saying this, not this. That God wanted the Israelites to consciously choose his way, to choose God's way all day in everything they did. So you have all these food laws from the time you get up, the kind of fabric you're putting on for clothing, how you uh, arrange your hair and personal hygiene, the food that you make. Everything is to say God has a way that you want, uh, that he wants it done. Do it God's way, not this other way. Not that those are moral issues, they're ceremonial, but it just reinforces in our mind the idea that obedience to God should be a habit. So these laws had the effect. It would be similar to Amish culture today. Uh, they dress the way they do and have their customs as a way of saying, we don't want to be influenced by outside culture. And that's exactly what ceremonial law did for Israel, that it distinguished it from surrounding nations. And we could say the ridicule poured on these Jewish practices by Gentiles in the New Testament period confirms that these customs really did effectively separate the Jewish people from Gentiles. But 
and I'll just finish with this, the ceremonial laws pertained only to Israel. This is why it says in Hebrews 9.10, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, which is what that Leviticus passage is about. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. So that reminds us that Christ's sacrificial act, that act of grace, replaced the foods and other things of ceremonial law. Thanks for hanging out with us on After Church Apologetics today. To submit a question for a future episode of our show, you can email us at podcast at bcfriends.org. Remember, the pursuit of truth is ongoing, so we'd like to encourage you to continue seeking and engaging with the topics that we've discussed for yourselves. And as we conclude this episode, we want to remind you that respectful dialogue can bridge gaps and build connections. We'll see you next time.